I am so much happier now that I'm dead. As long as we've been telling stories, we've been telling people not to believe them. Though we may be inclined to take events of a book, movie, or TV show at face value, we have to keep in mind those stories are being told by someone, an often unreliable narrator. Now, there's a couple versions of what happened that night. It all depends on who you ask, and to be honest, I'm not always the most reliable narrator. A movie or TV show with an unreliable narrator places the viewer deep inside the psyche of one person or several people. It might explore mental illness, the fickle nature of memory, or simply the fact that we're inclined to trust whoever's telling us the story, even though they have their own agenda. And it dramatizes how each of us is a unique person, with our own systems of reality, point of view, and incomplete grasp on the truth. These days, it's gotten harder and harder to trust the narrator of any story, fictional or not, fueling a growing sense that there might not be any heroes left to tell an honest and objective version of events. A 2020 study by NewsGuard revealed that unreliable news sites more than doubled their share of social media engagement in 2020. But even if everybody is an unreliable narrator, is it really the case that all narrators are equally unreliable or not to be trusted? A closer look at these stories reveals that they're not really about disproving the existence of truth, but rather training us to work harder, to use our powers of rational thinking, skepticism, and insight to piece together the real story. This is the unreliable narrator explained. Or is it? You're only in my head. We have to remember that. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to be notified about all of our new videos. Film and TV have long dealt with how mental illness can alter the way people perceive the world and tell stories about it. In one of the earliest landmarks of cinema, 1920 German horror film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, protagonist Francis unravels a conspiracy of hypnotism, manipulation, and murder in and around an asylum, only for the film's ending to reveal that Francis was a patient in the asylum all along. Dr. Caligari set a precedent for filmmakers to use mental illness as a twist, a way to tell the audience that we shouldn't have so easily trusted did everything the point-of-view character presented us with. Consider Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, a descendant to Caligari that, spoiler alert, ends with the protagonist Teddy Daniels discovering he's actually a patient who killed his beloved wife in the mental hospital his delusions have convinced him he's investigating for corruption. Patient is highly intelligent, highly delusional, decorated army veteran. Or the Stephen King adaptation Secret Window, which ends with protagonist Mort Rainey realizing the man stalking him throughout the movie is really just himself. There is no John Shooter. There never has been. You invented him. In these movies, the worldview of the character creates a subjective cinematic reality which dictates how we see everything in the film. In Fight Club, presented through Edward Norton's unnamed narrator's perspective, we see his charismatic and dangerous alter ego Tyler Durden as an entirely different person, played by Brad Pitt, because the narrator hasn't yet discovered this is part of himself. Because we're the same person. That's right. Fight Club does telegraph the narrator's instability early, offering us clues that it's really the narrator having a relationship with Marla and cutting in static images of Tyler Durden. But unreliable narrator techniques like casting Pitt can blind us to facts that are right in front of us, as we naturally strain to make sense of the pieces that seem not to fit instead of paying attention to the holes. I already knew the story before he told it to me. 
We see this in The Sixth Sense also, which opens with us witnessing the point of view character's death and features this ghost directly interacting with a kid who explicitly tells us he sees dead people. I see dead people. Director M. Night Shyamalan uses misdirection to make us miss these key facts and think we're watching a different story. The director said he's taken inspiration from Planet of the Apes and Psycho, where what you thought you saw, you did not see. Are you sure you saw an old woman? Yes, in the house behind the motel. Beyond the aha moment of the twists that result from this misdirection, there can be emotional narrative value to keeping us in the dark. People suffering from extreme mental illness can be hard to relate to from an outside perspective, while bringing us into their unusual view of the world can help us understand and sympathize. In Fight Club, we go along with the narrator's journey, drawn in by the charisma of Tyler's impossibly cool persona. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Presenting the film's more provocative ideas in the mouth of cool, sexy Tyler makes them feel like an invigorating liberation from the miserable imprisonment of consumerism. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. And some of that glamour power remains even after the film's ending undermines Tyler's ideas, at least in their extreme form. One of the most ambitious modern iterations of the unreliable narrator trope, Mr. Robot, is heavily influenced by and references Fight Club. Most obviously in the first season reveal that Mr. Robot is an alternate persona of protagonist Elliot Alderson. You're gonna make me say it, aren't you? I am Mr. Robot. But Mr. Robot takes pains from the beginning of the series to tell us that everything in the series is from Elliot's point of view. In fact, after a thorough intensive self-reprogramming that's on my mind here, Caesar reads when they pop up in my world. The show reminds us of this narrative flexibility again and again, up to and including spending several episodes depicting Elliot's daily routine living at his mother's house, which Elliot and the viewer later learn is a way for him to process the strict regimen of life in prison. You know, you haven't been staying with your mother, right? All of this has the effect of ensuring the viewer knows we're following Elliot's subjective journey, but we don't know why, until we finally learn of the original trauma that leaves him so fractured. Elliot is a victim of abuse at the hands of his father, the inspiration for his Mr. Robot identity. When Elliot finally reintegrates his various personalities in the series finale, everything we see changes. Creator and director Sam Ismail replaces the series' normal, cold, austere filmmaking with warm, inviting light. People with mental illnesses often occupy the position of other in our society. This other is to be feared but also inspires intrigue and excitement, which is why so many thrillers use mental illness as tricks or twists in their narration, from Psycho in 1960 to Split in 2016. He's done awful things to people and he'll do awful things to you. At times, depictions of mental illness and fractured personalities are used to reflect a particular aspect of society. Like in American Psycho, where Patrick Bateman's identity issues relate to how his lifestyle as a materialistic 1980s yuppie has turned him onto such an unfeeling suit that he struggles to know who he is and whether anything he remembers is true. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction but there is no real me. But while the conceit of a mentally ill narrator throws us off and can help surprise the audience with an unexpected ending, from a modern perspective, there's something questionable about reducing the suffering of mental illness to a plot gimmick. Some modern stories are doing a better job of treating the mentally ill narrator with more sensitivity. Florian Zeller's The Father puts us into the perspective of Anthony Hopkins' Anthony, an aging man with dementia who can't trust his own mind. Where's Anne? Sorry? Anne, where is she? I'm here. 
The story's unreliable narration includes us in what this awful process might feel like from the inside for Anthony. Through constant yet slight changes of his spatial setting, scenes that skip forward and backward in time without warning, and rapid age transformations of other characters, whom Anthony senses are treating him like a child or invalid, even though he still feels like the same logical person. There's a resemblance, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her unbearable habit of laughing inanely. Zeller said he intended it to feel like going through a labyrinth. Questions of mental health aside, can any of us ever really trust our own memories? Scientific evidence increasingly proves we don't remember things objectively. In a study from University of Mainz, German researchers were able to convince participants of life events that actually never took place. Film and TV often explore the nature of memory by presenting multiple versions of events and asking the audience to adjudicate, a trope exemplified by the movie that is also the source of its nickname, the Rashomon Effect. As differing accounts of a crime are told through several perspectives, Akira Kurosawa's 1950 film shows how the teller of each story turns themselves into the protagonist of their own movie within a movie, highlighting the ways that we often remember and communicate life events in the most self-serving light possible. Rashomon presents an eventual final version of the story, but it's unclear if even this one is accurate. <laughs> Other stories about crimes since likewise present competing accounts, as well as how the human mind often responds to traumatic events with unreliable memories. Based on a true story, the Netflix series Unbelievable examines how, under extreme duress from police interrogation, Marie, a rape victim, is too rattled to stick to a consistent report of the night she was assaulted. Over time, Marie comes to doubt whether she is remembering the events correctly, leading her to be branded a liar. The only thing we know for sure is that you have told us at least three lies. But the detectives in Unbelievable also talk to several people who were attacked by the same rapist and remember more accurately, reminding us that victims don't have to be objective or perfectly accurate narrators to be telling the truth. For some people, locking in on every single visual detail is what helps them, but for you, it was the opposite. Romantic movies use unreliable narrators to dig into the way that people in even the most intimate partnerships can perceive the same events in radically different lights. 500 Days of Summer tracks how protagonist Tom idealizes his love interest Summer and fails to listen to the actual communications of the person who's in front of him. I think you're just remembering the good stuff. Next time you look back, I, uh, I really think you should look again. Euphoria highlights how protagonist Rue's romantic fantasies cloud her recounting of events. In the first season, Rue gave the audience the impression that she and her love interest Jules got matching tattoos to cement their bond. But it turns out this never happened. We talked about getting matching tattoos on the inside of our lips. Did you? No. According to showrunner Sam Levinson, Rue's perspective is very much Rue's perspective. She is limited in her ability to understand the other emotional worlds of other characters, and it leaves open the other side of the story, which is Jules' side. The Affair takes this difference in lovers' perspectives to a creative extreme where each episode depicts the same events from the clashing perspectives of two or more characters. Everybody lives inside of their own narrative, so there's no objective truth. Many concrete details are changed between versions, from outfits to actions to what's said, but they're 
presented in each person's mind as factual, just as our memories often feel to us. A big part of what's different is also the selection of which scenes are treated as relevant and remembered, which illuminates how each character is seeing the larger story. In Noah's segments, he comes across as a thoughtful, passionate guy who's falling in love with an irresistible new woman named Allison. Whereas in his wife, Helen's segments, he just seems like an asshole. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind similarly makes the unreliable romantic memory trope literal, using a fictional memory loss procedure to show the main characters' memories of their relationship. Science fiction, especially adaptations of the works of Philip K. Dick like Total Recall, A Scanner Darkly, or Blade Runner, also explore how memories deceive us and place the audience in a position of uncertainty. I just had a terrible thought. What if this is a dream? And they may unsettle us more profoundly by planting the question, if we can't trust our memories, how can we know for certain that anything we believe is real? Some of the most prominent unreliable narrators have a sinister agenda, manipulating the audience to buy their self-serving version of events. One of the most iconic examples is the usual suspect's verbal Kent, a petty criminal who documents his relationship with mastermind Kaiser Soze, only to get away just before the police and we realize verbal is actually Soze himself. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The unreliable villainous narrator trope has its roots in literature, where seductive monsters can be used to enthrall us, perhaps even trick us into going along on questionable journeys. In Lolita, author Vladimir Nabokov gives narrator Humbert Humbert seductively beautiful language to convince the audience that his predatory relationship with a child is something special. This mixture in my Lolita of tender, dreamy childishness and a kind of vulgarity. But in the end, the story makes the point that Humbert has ruined this young girl's life, stealing her childhood from her. Gone Girl plays on our assumptions about gender to surprise us partway through the story with the reveal that Amy Dunn is the secret mastermind who framed her husband Nick Dunn for her murder. Her behavior is instinctively shocking because it goes against our expectations of an upper-middle-class, college-educated white housewife. And even after the audience understands that Amy is murderous and conniving, we've spent a good chunk of the movie entering the world of the Duns through her relatable narrations about the husband who used her up and replaced her with a younger woman. Found himself a newer, younger, bouncier, cool girl. So after listening to her iconic cool girl monologue, pinpointing the unfair treatment of women in our society, we might still be tempted to cheer on this revenge story on some level. You think I'd let him destroy me and end up happier than ever? No way. Some characters are explicit about their desire to be liked, to the point where they break the fourth wall and plead their case to the audience. Starting in 2006, Dexter managed to get audiences to root for him even while they watched him murder people every week, because he spoke articulately about his code and seemingly moral motives. The best deed I can do is rid the world of you. A descendant of Dexter, used Joe Goldberg, is a highly charming psychopath meets rom-com nice guy. Everything I do, I do to protect you, Beck. Yet even though Joe is a murderer who frequently lies to both himself and the audience, fans of you continue to sympathize with and root for Joe, to the point where star Penn Badgley has had to repeatedly disavow the character. Joe is one of the worst people ever. Don't aspire to be like him. Don't defend him ever. Badgley might be fighting a losing battle. We're naturally inclined to identify with the person telling us the story, especially when they're our introduction to the world of a movie or TV show. This even extends to narratives where we're very aware we're aligned with a bad guy, like House of Cards. Shake with your right hand, but hold a rock in your left. 
the narrator automatically creates a bond with the viewer, playing on the private, confidant nature of the audience relationship to make us complicit. And perhaps something within us might will them on, even if it's just because we wonder what will happen or if they can pull it off. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal on the verge of frenzy. Even when a narrator has no villainous motives, they still have an agenda. In Fleabag, the narrator's hiding a lot of her truth from us because she's in shameful denial of it. She wants her imaginary audience to see her as she'd like to be seen, so she can escape from the messier reality she can't control. What was that? What? Where did you, where did you just go? You just went somewhere. Carrie Bradshaw in Sex in the City shapes everything we see through her interpretation of events, used as evidence for her arguments about love and dating, and as a backdrop to her own big love story, which, if we knew her in real life, some of us might not find super romantic. I'm sorry he cheated on me with you, and I'm sorry that I pretended to ignore it for as long as I did. Not only have you ruined my marriage, you've ruined my lunch. Unless they're told by an omnipotent godlike third-person narrator, stories reflect only the perspective of their teller. The selection of that perspective is a fundamental shaper of the story world and its DNA. Traditionally, we're more primed to accept this subjectivity in literature. In the American Psycho novel by Bret Easton Ellis, readers can accept the narration's heightened, many over-the-top details without trying to resolve the accuracy of each event. Whereas in the film adaptation, viewers fixated on the question of whether Bateman definitively did commit the murders he thinks he did. I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. The tendency to expect objective truth in film and TV is why Ellis himself said American Psycho should have never been made into a movie. But today, we're seeing viewers accept stories on screen using the unreliable narrator technique more subtly in degrees. In Yellow Jackets, we're likely to think Shauna's perspective of events in her personal life is reasonably supported by the evidence we've witnessed. Like that her husband is having an affair, and the mysterious new guy who suddenly showed up in her life has some sinister, opportunistic plan. I know about the blackmail, okay, Adam? Or whatever your name is. But when she acts on these beliefs by confronting the supposed imposter, the series suddenly intercuts with young Shauna and the traumatic experiences she underwent as a teen, stranded in the wilderness with her soccer team in the 90s. So we realize we've been trusting the paranoid perspective of a person whose mind was irreparably damaged by that youthful trauma. And the evidence we thought we saw could be interpreted other ways by someone in a healthier mind state. In Annette, the framing of the story might at first yield us to take this musical as the love story that the characters tell us it is. But the more we listen to what Adam Driver's character Henry actually tells us in his comedy act and personal life scenes, the more we realize he wasn't the romantic hero we were perhaps too eager to take him for. I killed my wife. Because yes, being in love makes me sick. And even the curious doll-like appearance of his daughter is really an expression of his limited subjectivity because he fails to see women, even his own child, as real people. Can't I love you? No. Not really. To be an unreliable narrator is to be human. But does this mean all unreliable narrations are equal or there isn't any truth to be found? Not at all. To understand why, let's take a closer look at Christopher Nolan's Memento. Protagonist Leonard suffers from anterograde amnesia. I have no short-term memory. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. 
which the film models by showing its events in two different tracks, one in chronological order, shown in black and white, and one in reverse order, shown in color. Director Christopher Nolan explained he chose to tell the story backwards so that it denied the audience the information that the protagonist is denied. Through presenting the protagonist's narrative subjectivity, Nolan places the audience in Leonard's position. We have to play an active role in creating meaning from the clues given to us. Ultimately, Memento doesn't leave us with the takeaway that there isn't any truth, it just puts us into Leonard's unsettling position of striving endlessly to decipher it, and possibly failing. The unreliable narrator's story in general asks us to be detectives in this way. It trains us to be a little more skeptical, observant, and discerning, to notice when something we're being told sounds a little off or doesn't add up. I know this because Tyler knows this. Becoming your own true detective of truth is more important than ever in today's fake news cycles, biased accounts, and social media feeds where we're bombarded with conspiracies and opinions under the guise of verified information. Only when we research, investigate, and verify can we avoid being swayed by someone else's self-serving narration and figure out the true story for ourselves. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation, they're not a record. This is the take on your favorite movie, shows, and pop culture. Thanks for watching, and don't forget to subscribe.